May the grace and peace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. If you will look in your worship order, you will find the sermon text for the evening. And a little explanation is due. It's a rather long story centering on the woman we know of as Bathsheba. And I wanted to draw attention to her instead of drawing attention to David. And so you will find selections from 1 Samuel Second uh, Samuel 11 and 12, as you uh, read that, you'll see ellipsis as I've tried to piece together the story to focus on uh, this woman. If you are willing and able, I invite you to stand for the reading of God's holy word. Remind you that this is a part of our series on the mothers of Jesus. And this is the last in the series as we look at these women who appear in the genealogy of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew. And this woman is not even given a name in the genealogy. She is simply referred to as the wife of Uriah. But we know her as Bathsheba. And this is her story according to God's holy word. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing, and how the people were doing, and how the war was going. David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. And the Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and he became sick. David therefore sought God on behalf of the child, and David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground, and the elders of his house stood beside him to raise him from the ground, but he would not, nor did he eat food with them. On the seventh day the child died. Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba and went in to her and lay with her, and she bore a son. And he called his name Solomon. And the Lord loved him and sent a message by Nathan the prophet. So he called his name Jedidiah because of the Lord. 
And that is the word of the Lord. May God add his blessings to the reading, the preaching, and the hearing of his word. And all the church says, you may be seated. Today is the first Sunday after Christmas. And we've been reminded throughout this month that Jesus is the reason for the season. And we are to keep Christ in Christmas. And we might be wondering why on this evening of all stories, we select the story of David and Bathsheba. What in the world does this story have to do with Christ or with Christmas? Well, if you hang in for just a few moments, you'll see that there are some connections made for us by the Holy Spirit in the scriptures. But this story serves as an entry point for us into the story of Jesus Christ because of the things that unfolded, unfolded and they were necessary to unfold before Jesus Christ came into the world, born of a virgin, born under the law. If you're like me and you begin your day usually on Facebook or reading the morning news in your news feed or perhaps even watching the news on television, You'll know that for the past year, story after story has been related about men in power taking advantage of women in the workplace or in other places. Men in power taking advantage of women for their own pleasure, their own passion, and some women being abused terribly by these men in power. In the story that we see before us, this is a classic example of a man in power taking advantage of a woman who is vulnerable. Sadly, many commentators want to try to put the blame for what happened here on Bathsheba. And it's interesting to see that the more things change, the more they remain the same. Throughout human history, it has been common too common for men to get a pass for their actions. Subconsciously, we are accustomed to blaming women for the failures of men. In fact, it's gotten to the point where many people will presume that men are innocent until proven guilty, but women are often presumed guilty until proven innocent. And this is the case even among biblical scholars and theologians as they grapple with a story like the one we just heard. For example, some conservative scholars that I read take the view that Bathsheba was either to blame for David's fall or that she was at least complicit in it. In other words, she had a role to play. Some teachers imagine a series of events wherein Bathsheba is portrayed as an ambitious young woman who put herself out there in order to seduce David and then played the role of an accomplice in order to grab power and rise to a position of authority and glory. Dutch Reformed theologian and statesman Abraham Kuyper speculates that Quote, if she had been appropriately modest, David would not have been tempted and the anointed of Israel would never have become guilty of such an outrageous disgrace. What has been said does not, however, represent the whole of Bathsheba's sin. She should never have assented to come when David sent for her. It may be supposed that she had no 
presentiment of the reason for the summons. Even then, in the king's palace, in his bedchamber, she should have wrestled to death rather than to have yielded to adultery. Beyond doubt, therefore, Bathsheba was not merely the provocation of David's sin, but his accomplice as well. Her later conduct confirms that opinion. When her husband Uriah returned to Jerusalem and remained lying before the door of his house, she made no attempt to see him. She did not charge the king with rape, and she did not confess her guilt with tears. She simply remained in her house. It is true that when the news of Uriah's death reached Jerusalem, she observed a formal period of mourning for him. Thereupon, she immediately went to live at the palace. She supplemented David's many wives, and all these events moved so swiftly that she was already in the palace at the time she gave birth to the child she conceived in sin. All due respect to Abraham Kuyper, But I totally disagree with this unfair attack on Bathsheba's life and character. It is not based on God's revelation of the events, but rather on man's speculation and imagination of what might have been happening if you read between the lines. But there's no grounds for this kind of description of Bathsheba. The scriptures take a very different view From this view, the scriptures present Bathsheba as a victim of David's lust and power and try as we might to protect the Lord's anointed and try as we might to keep the hands of a man after God's own heart clean. The scriptures and the Holy Spirit do not allow us such a luxury. They put the blame squarely on David. And the scriptures nowhere suggest that Bathsheba was at fault for bathing in the evening in the privacy of her own home, which is which was the custom of the women in those days. The scriptures nowhere suggest that Bathsheba was at fault for being power raped by David, if in fact that is what happened. The scriptures do not do not blame her for anything else that unfolded in this tragic story. David and David alone was the one that God blamed. And David himself confessed that he alone had sinned against God in this manner. In the scripture reading, you might have noticed that I edited the text down. Again, I want to point this out to you, but I edited the text down not to leave out important details, but simply to draw attention to Bathsheba, the woman. I want you to see her tonight, maybe in a way that you've never seen her before. If you've been around the Christian church very long, if you've heard the story very much, if you've seen any movies depicting this story, then you will know that Bathsheba has been objectified and sexualized for so long that we forget to humanize and personify her. We forget, in other words, that she was a human being made in the image and likeness of God. And so tonight, with the time remaining in the sermon, I want to introduce you to Bathsheba, the young woman. I want you to meet her again for the first time and perhaps meet her again with gracious and merciful eyes. Here's a biographical sketch of her life. Some things that are not readily available in the story we read, but in the context of the Old Testament, we learn these things. 
that Bathsheba was the granddaughter of one of David's trusted counselors. According to tradition, this man was so wise that his contemporaries often referred to him as the oracle. She was also the daughter of Eliam, one of David's special forces units. He was one of David's special forces units, a member of the mighty men of David. He and David were about the same age. They had been with each other for as long as David had been in pursuit of the throne. When David was fleeing from Saul for his life, this man stood at David's side. He traveled with David. He lived in caves with David. He roughed it with David, sacrificed himself for David. They were like brothers in many ways. And he had served David in many spectacular ways from the time before David took the throne until this present story. And later on, we learn that there was even an occasion when he risked his life for David just because he overheard David say, oh, that I could have a drink of water from the wells of Bethlehem. And this man with a couple of other mighty men broke through Philistine enemy lines, risking their lives to bring David a pitcher of water which he then poured out in their presence, for he feared God that he had put the blood of these men on the line. This was Bathsheba's father. Bathsheba was also the sister of a man named Machir, a man who was known as a loyal supporter of David. Later on, when the rebellion breaks out and one of David's sons, Absalom, tries to take the throne from David and drive David away, this man stands by David's side, Bathsheba's brother. So the point of all of this is that Bathsheba grew up around David and his royal family. Her father and her family interacted with David's family. David watched this girl grow up. He watched her get married. He knew who she married, for she married a man who was also one of David's mighty men. A brother in arms to Bathsheba's father. David knew her husband. He knew how he fought. He knew how valiant and mighty he was. He knew where Uriah and Bathsheba lived. He knew that that was her palace. That was her home near the palace. So when he asked the question, who is this woman? It's not because of failing eyesight in his old age, as some commentators like to imagine. He knew exactly who she was. It's a rhetorical question. He's playing ignorant, playing dumb for the sake of getting her into his palace. When Bathsheba was married to Uriah the Hittite, she married into a group of people who were known as the most valiant and mighty men of David. This man, Uriah, was one of David's special forces members. Now, the point of all of this is to say that Bathsheba was not just a thing to be looked at as is often presented when people come to this story. The point is to say that Bathsheba was A young woman. And yes, she was a very beautiful woman. But there's more to her than that. She's not just eye candy. 
There's more to her than that. This is a woman with a real life and a real family. She's not just some sex object to be gazed at. She is a woman made in the image and likeness of God. She was someone's daughter. She was someone's sister. She was someone's wife. She had hopes and dreams, just like other young women. And because of David's passion, because of his pursuit of his own pleasures, she lost them all. She lost herself to the power and the passion of a man that she had admired and respected all her life. She lost her husband, not in a tragic accident, not in the normal course of war, but to a murder plot orchestrated by a man that she had trusted all her life. She lost her firstborn son to the curse of an incurable sickness as a consequence of one man's sin. And eventually, she is going to lose her grandfather as a consequence of David's sin. This is a woman who has suffered grievous losses in her life over one sin. This is a woman who is experiencing loss upon loss Not by her own decision and action, but by the decision and actions of others. In the pastoral epistles, the Apostle Paul writes to a young pastor named Timothy. And he says to Timothy, a word of counsel that I want to convey to all the men of our congregation. You treat older women as mothers. You treat younger women as sisters with absolute purity. This is sound advice and sound counsel, not only for men who are in ministry, but for men in general. And I want to impress this upon the men of our church and upon our sons. That we need to know that when we look out in the world, we look across the street or we look around the corner We look across the workplace at a cubicle, we're driving down the road, we're in a coffee shop, when we're on Instagram or Facebook or wherever we happen to be, we need to know that the women that pass in front of our field of vision are someone's daughter, someone's sister, someone's wife, someone's mother. They are not objects that exist merely for our pleasures, but they are creatures made in the image and likeness of God. That includes godly women. It includes ungodly women as well. Those Instagram models, actresses, even porn stars are someone's daughter, someone's sister, someone's friend, someone who needs the grace and mercy of God. And for a brief moment in his life, David forgot this fundamental truth. 
The heart wants what it wants. And in this moment, David wanted Bathsheba for himself more than he wanted to obey the law of God, more than he wanted to bring glory to God. He wanted to gratify his own desires. I remember years ago uh, seeing these public service announcement ads. This was back in the day before cell phones, and this was simply when radios and stereos and cars became more complex and they had more features. And one of the ads went something like this. I forget the name. We'll say Johnny. Johnny didn't like the song on the radio, so he killed six people. And in the ad, it's Johnny trying to change the station because he doesn't like the song. Nowadays, it's about texting and driving, isn't it? Got to answer that text right now. Got to do this thing right now. I'm bored. I, I can't concentrate. And so what happens? We end up killing people. What does that have to do with David? Remember that this was the time of war. David should not have been home. He should have been out with his army fighting. Instead, for some reason, he stayed home. And David didn't like sitting at home. David didn't like being bored. David didn't like being alone. So what did he do? He wrecked his life. He wrecked Bathsheba's life. He wrecked her father's life and her grandfather's life. He wrecked the life of his children. He wrecked shop because he didn't like the song on the radio. He didn't like what he saw in his own life. And so he went looking elsewhere. And the consequences of his sin were felt far down the line. Nathan the prophet said to him, the sword will never leave your house. And for the remainder of his days, though God forgave all of David's sins and washed him whiter than snow, the consequences of his sin were felt in his life until the day he died. As he watched his family tear itself apart. Bathsheba was in the middle of all of that. All because she was born to a mighty man near David's house and married a mighty man and lived near David's house. She was in the wrong place at the wrong time. And she suffered all of that loss. Now, if her story ended here, it would be a total loss and tragedy, not only for her, but even for us. But the story doesn't end here because you know that embedded in these stories is the gospel of grace. As we say around here, God draws straight lines with crooked sticks. God redeems our twisted and crooked stories and he works them together for our good and for his glory. How he does all of that is a mystery. How he goes about doing all of that, even in the midst of our lives, is a mystery. But in retrospect, we look back on all the brokenness, on all the twisted turns, on all the bad decisions we've made, on all the stupid things we've done, and we wonder, how in the world did we get here? God brought us here by grace through faith. In this story, after God dealt with David and all his sins, he shows mercy. 
He shows grace to both David and Bathsheba. You see, when David's sin devoured, what David's sin devoured from Bathsheba, God's grace restored to her. What she lost in a few months, she regained over the course of many, many years, all because of God's grace. She gained a new husband as David took her as his wife. She gained four sons. One son in particular stands out because he is the son that God loved and chose to sit on David's throne. David named this son Solomon, and that's how we all know him. But God intervened and renamed him Jedediah. Jedediah. I just spent some time up in Kentucky, and I can't help but hear Jedediah in a different way than the scriptures reveal it. Jedediah sounds like someone from the hills of Kentucky, doesn't it? It sounds like someone from the Beverly Hillbillies. As someone said somewhere on the interwebs, Jedediah sounds like the name of a racist, Bible-thumping redneck from the American South. But his name means loved by God, friend of the Lord. So you see, unlike the child that was conceived in adultery and born out of wedlock and suffered and died under a curse, this child was blessed by the Lord and rose up to become the king after David. Bathsheba also gained a throne. You don't see this coming, do you? But as you make your way through the story, suddenly she appears in 1 Kings 1 and 2. And she's seated on a throne. It shows us that Bathsheba became the queen mother. In 1 Kings chapter 1, Bathsheba goes and reminds David, who is sick and on his deathbed. He's on his way out. And she goes and reminds him of his promise to make Jedidiah, to make Solomon the king in his place. And David honors that promise and issues the decree. And his son Solomon, the son of Uriah's wife, is anointed in public. And all Israel knows that he is the king. David passes away and then there's upheaval. Who's going to rule? Who's going to reign? How do we establish Solomon's throne and make sure that Solomon can reign? And there's Bathsheba sitting as queen mother counseling and advising her son Solomon in 1 Kings 2. She advises and counsels Solomon when he starts ruling as the king. She is the queen mother. And certainly this goes beyond her wildest dreams and hopes. God has given her more than she ever dared ask for. He has given her a place of prominence among his people. And it is her steady hand, it is her gentle spirit, it is her wise counsel that is helping her son establish his reign and rule in Israel. Throughout this series, we've been saying that the women who appear in the genealogies of Jesus are shadows of Mary, the mother of Jesus. And they were, each in their own way, reflect or resemble in some way Mary, the mother of Jesus. In this story in particular, I can't help but think of the time when Mary, the mother of Jesus, 
sends word to Jesus at a wedding in Cana. They're out of wine. She's advising and counseling him to take action. And much like Solomon in 1 Kings 2, Jesus responds with respect, but with a firm hand, letting her know that he is the king and she is not. And as Solomon did not take the advice of his mother in the occasion mentioned in 1 Kings 2, so Jesus does not exactly take the advice of his mother in John chapter 2. The important thing to note is that in both stories, the queen mother gave very sound advice for all of us who are listening. Whatever he says, you do. Whatever he says, you do. His word is law. And that's what Bathsheba wanted the people around her to know about King Solomon. It's what Mary wanted people around her to know about King Jesus. These mothers of Jesus, as we've called them, are so crucial to the story of redemption that we can say with confidence that without them, without their twisted and broken and crooked stories, none of us would be here. But God in His providence and mercy worked in mysterious and glorious ways to ensure that Jesus Christ would come into the world born of a virgin, born under the law at just the right time, and that He would come into the world to save sinners. Matthew mentions all of these women in the genealogy to remind us that God's purpose cannot be thwarted by Satan's schemes. That God's plan cannot be crushed by man's sins. That whatever men intend for evil, God has the capacity and the ability to work out for the good. As you reflect on your circle of friends and think back over people you've known, undoubtedly you can think of people who were much like Tamar, much like Rahab or Ruth or even Bathsheba. You can think of many women in your circle of influence who have been mistreated by men, who have been abused by men, who have been tossed aside or misused for the purposes of men. And what those women need to know and what you need to know if you've experienced those things is that God is sovereign over all things. And while he ordains everything whatsoever that comes to pass, he is not the author of sin. But he is the one who writes what is wrong. He is the one who rewrites stories. He is the one who redeems us out of our brokenness, out of our sin. These stories fill us with hope because they remind us that no matter how bad things get, no matter how bad things look, no matter how ugly the story can be, God makes beauty out of ugly things. And he does this through the person and work of Jesus Christ. I don't want any of you sisters or mothers to feel that you are less than anyone else because of your experiences in the world or because you happen to be women. You should take great comfort in knowing that God does magnificent things through men and through women. And without these women, none of us would be here. Without you, none of us would be here either. Let's give praise and glory to God for his marvelous grace revealed to us in the good news of Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Oh God, I do want to pray for your mercy and grace to descend upon 
the women of our congregation, upon our mothers, our sisters, our wives, our daughters. We pray that the truth and the power of the gospel will be evident in their lives and in the lives of the men around them, the men who are called to love and protect and shelter and encourage them. We pray, O oh God, that the women of our congregation will be empowered by the spirit of grace, by the truth of the gospel, to live and serve before you as glorious women of God. In a world that's gone crazy, that mistreats women, that abuses them, in a world where women sometimes overcorrect and overreact, looking for better ways, we pray that all will find that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. We stand amazed at the way you work through the life of Bathsheba and the other women that we have met in this series. We've all been brought to our knees in repentance for the way we have treated others and acted towards them. We've all lifted up our hands in praise for the way you have displayed your glory and power in the most unexpected of places. We thank you, O oh God, for revealing to us not just the stories of David and Bathsheba and Solomon, but for revealing to us the way you worked in their stories and the way you were present at every moment in every detail. And that comforts us in knowing that you abide with us even now. We thank you, O oh God, for hearing our prayers. We, we offer them up to you through Jesus Christ, our Lord, knowing that he sits at the right hand of God. And he will answer us in due time. In the name of Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen.